do you consider yourself a space lawyer? I am also a science fiction writer. And one of the reasons I, I say I'm not a space lawyer in that context is because some of my science fiction has space law issues in it, and I don't want anyone thinking that's legal advice. It's fiction. <laughs> <laughs> right. Fictional non-advice, just to make it right. abundantly clear. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Nathan Johnson, and in each episode, I interview professionals in space law and policy to try and find out exactly what that means. First, a disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any of my past, present, or future employers or clients. Today, I am joined by Laura Montgomery. Hi, my name is Laura Montgomery, and I am a space lawyer. I teach space law at Catholic University's Columbus School of Law, where I am an adjunct professor. I have my own practice through my law offices at Ground-Based Space Matters. I blog, and I, uh, I'm also not a space lawyer because I write science fiction. And one of the reasons I, I say I'm not a space lawyer in that context is because some of my science fiction has space law issues in it, and I don't want anyone thinking that's legal advice. It's fiction. <laughs> <laughs> right. Fictional non-advice, just to make it right. abundantly clear. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I use that as a standard question for everybody. Do you consider yourself a space lawyer? Yes. And what does that mean to you? Well, in many ways, I am an administrative law attorney as well. Mm -hmm. um, space is a place. It is not necessarily just a certain body of law. But because space is a very strange place, and very far away, and um, has all sorts of unique aspects to it. I do think we can say that there is space law. I I'm a regulatory attorney for for the most part. So, and my specialty is is the FAA's licensing and regulation of launch and reentry and the operation of launch and reentry sites. Since I spent so much time there at the FAA, but um, Space law is, is laws that apply to space in a, in a nutshell, but it also can mean, you know, satellite regulations, uh, remote sensing regulations, other things within the U.S. And then on the international stage, of course, there's the outer space treaties. Do you think space law predates the outer space treaty? Well, when was uh, Sputnik? The 50s, wasn't it? Sputnik, uh, 59, I believe. Yeah, so so I'm sure that you could make an argument it starts with in 1959. Okay. 
All right. And that predates 1967, which is the Outer Space Treaty signing. At what point does it enter into the domestic arena? Well, in the FAA context, uh, I would say that the liability convention certainly plays a role in the U.S. decision to mandate the purchase of insurance or requiring launch operators to make some other demonstration of financial responsibility. In, in short, the FAA does math and says, oh, look, um, this is the uh, maximum probable loss you could cause to third parties with your big rocket, so please go buy this much insurance to the launch operators, and then a company will go buy that insurance. This protects the U.S. government because under the liability convention, the U.S. government, when it is a launching state, and if someone is launching from U.S. territory, the U.S. government is a launching state, the U.S. government may be liable to other countries where damage is caused by that launch. That is a particular example that is very close to my heart because I sort of consider it the first thing I worked on while interning at the FAA was researching um, that insurance indemnification regime in the U.S. regulations. And I can quote all three tiers of it, and I can even get into the legislative history, which you encouraged me to look into to sort of figure some things out. That is where we first met during my internship at the FAA. Yeah, we had quite quite the, the thorny questions there with that one. So It seems like little by little, there's, there's a little more certainty with each Congress that considers uh, those financial requirements. They did a nice extension the last time around. They extended it, I think, until 2023. Before that, they were extending it one, three, or five years. That is the uh, so-called indemnification provisions, where the U.S. government would cover damages in excess of the required insurance. So now the launch community has some certainty until early 2020s. Yes, and I think that's helpful because if I remember correctly, the rule of thumb is getting a launch usually takes about three years from wanting to be launched and getting all of that in order and filing the paperwork and stuff. Uh, it's usually like a three-year time frame. So if they are trying to launch in the next three years, but they don't know whether their insurance costs are going to be capped in the market by these provisions, it's really hard to plan for that. Yeah, no. So it's it's good to have uh, to have a good period of of certainty. Because there's so much in a space launch that isn't always certain, but luckily we've had pretty good success historically so far. So far, so good. <laughs> so we have worked together. We've spoken about space law and careers. So I know some of these answers bef already, but this is going to be new to our listeners. So I want to have you talk about how did you get interested in space law, because this can go, you know, before you actually started a job in space law. This is, can even go back before you were in law school. So if you could trace back, when was the, the first event that got you interested in space law? Well, I think I'll go back to when I was 13, and I read Robert Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and suddenly I stopped being a horse crazy girl and became a space crazy girl and uh, read all the science fiction I could get my hands on and 
I went to college, I was not really a STEM type of person. I was, I was a philosophy major, in fact. But I realized then that I wanted to go to law school because I'm good at writing and arguing and language and all that sort of thing. And I thought, this is how I can get to work for NASA. So I decided in college that I wanted to be a lawyer so I could do something with space somehow. And it was pretty fuzzy in my head at that point, but I, I figured that was the best way. Maybe I could work for a company or the government or something. And so I, I decided about halfway through college that I was going to become a lawyer rather than a science fiction writer. That's somewhat similar to my path because I graduated with a television and film degree uh, from undergrad. And unfortunately for me, I went into the entertainment industry at a time where science fiction wasn't doing that well. Um, And I enjoyed talking about it and I enjoyed writing about it and researching it. And that's when I realized that there was another place for me to apply all those interests. It just so happened that instead of making things up, uh, ideally I would be talking about what's actually happening. And that's when I applied for law school and started down that path. Do you think ideally practicing space law requires that sort of imaginative ability? You know, I don't think so. I, I know people who come to an interest in space law independent of an interest in science fiction. (laughs) They just, they just love the idea of space and, you know, the frontier that it offers, the new opportunities, all the strange things. What it does require is a good legal mind because given that so much of what, what we all like to talk about for outer space has not yet happened, you want to be careful not to get ahead of the game. I think that, that people want to you know, plan whole societies and have all sorts of regulations for things that don't exist. And that's a sure ticket to disaster because you don't know what's going to come about. And if you go imposing rules before someone's even built something, it's, it's a, you, can, you can have a very stifling effect. It's all very good to be imaginative, but keep that separate from what's actually in front of us right now. And make sure that you're the sort of lawyer who knows that when you read the words, you use the words you're reading. Don't go making up other words and pretend that it says something else. So, sorry, that's a pet peeve I have. Um, <laughs> no, and no, and it's, it's really, it is important for people who are creating rules and then also in charge of using those rules to implement or behave in coordination with them. I can't remember how my professor in law school said it, but he said something along the lines of early law is bad law. <laughs> There's the um, also bad facts make bad law. Mm-hmm. So you go get something written. I am not going to name the company, but there was a, a certain change to the, the definitions of launch and launch vehicle that were made to accommodate a company that, that went away. And they're kind of a a pesty little thing in the statute that is not so helpful. And they were created for someone who didn't make it. So those are the bad facts. And now we have the bad law. Mm, that's That's an interesting example. And that'll be a fun thing for people to piece together outside of your quote. Like a little scavenger hunt through the regulations. Oh, there you go. <laughs> 
that reminds me, I saw a post this week, and this is going to date the interview. In 2019, uh, I believe a Russian startup wants to launch a constellation of satellites in orbit that can then be hired to create advertising in space. And I recalled that during my first internship summer at the FAA, I read through the regulations and I noticed that there was a regulation about space advertising. I saw it 51 U.S. Code 50911. It said that you couldn't issue a license for obtrusive space advertising. Right. Do you have any idea of the history of why that is so specifically mentioned? I don't know what led to that law being passed. <laughs> Someone was up to something, clearly. And, and just, just to be clear, obtrusive space advertising is that which is capable of being recognized by a human on the surface of the Earth without the aid of a telescope. So if those Russians do it, they will be, it will be interesting to see how that goes because on, in the United States, we, if we're able to see it, does that violate our law? Well, it's not taking place in our territory. The effects are felt here. I could see that being a really good argument. That that would be a yeah, that would be a good case to help define some of those aspects in aspects that aren't just limited to that specific law necessarily, but could be applied to future events as well. I just remember reading that and that being one of my favorite regulations uh, <laughs> or statutes. If you, you know, that means you really are a lawyer when you have favorite statutes and regulations. I think I, it's coming back to me now, Nathan. I think someone wanted to do something on the moon or was talking about it. and Someone took it very seriously and said, no. There, and again, bringing it back to science fiction, there is a story in the comic The Tick where uh-huh. somebody tries to use a laser to burn their name into the moon. Uh-huh. And they don't stop it from starting, but they stop it in the middle of it. So from that point forward, the moon always has a giant CH carved into it. <laughs> and luckily, that's not, that's not reality. That's not the world that we're living in yet. So that's good. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Let's take it back again. So you were interested in space and you were interested in the aspects of it that involved sort of philosophy and society. Yeah, Um, Yeah. I was interested in space settlement from the get-go. Space settlement. Yes, and what I was interested in was getting a job that I could do where I would somehow be able to, you know, worm my way into the space community. So it all worked out. (laughs) For our young professional listeners, can you walk through that a little bit more? You talk about getting your way into the space industry. So you definitely started outside of it. Yes. So I, um, you know, I went to law school and I tried to get a course on space law going, but, but no luck. And, um, the, uh, I took, I took administrative law because it seemed like you know, there might be regulations. And I took law of the sea because that seemed like parallels. I took international law because there were treaties. And I took what I could that seemed applicable to space, you know, at least around the edges. And then I did apply to NASA for a summer job, but they had a hiring freeze. So I didn't, I didn't get to do that. But I went, I wound up getting a job with a law firm 
that had telecom work, telecommunications work, and they had a satellite constellation client. And when I got there, that the fellow who had that client was gone. So I did a lot of black lung briefs, co-workers pneumoconiosis, and work with radio and television station licensing, as well as common carriage, you know, telephone companies. And so I did learn a whole lot of administrative law. And then after I'd been there for about six or seven years, I think it was, I saw an ad for a job at the Department of Transportation. They were looking for a lawyer to work with the space office, licensing and regulating launch and reentry. And I was just determined to get this job. And so I, I applied. And I think my, my background was useful. Also, I had joined women in aerospace. So I think that made me look like a sincere space nut. So that was good. And after my first interview, I went over to the Air and Space Museum where they have the moon, a moon rock on display. I touched that for good luck. And I got the job. and uh, I think you've heard this story before in Avon but sorry and then I and then we got moved from our little group got moved from the Department of Transportation into the FAA because if someone saw synergies between air and space and boom we were moved so I spent 22 years you know in that same job even if in different buildings at a certain point so I became I became a senior attorney for commercial space and in the office of the chief counsel. And then I became the manager of the space law branch. And so I got to work on, I think I looked it up once. I think I got to work on about three quarters of the regulations in, in the code of federal regulations that apply to FAA uh, space launch regulation. So that, that was Really good, really fascinating, had lots of great experiences and met wonderful people and worked on interesting things and got to think about space over 40 hours a week. It was great. <laughs> no, it it was an exciting place when I interned there. Um, and the FAA buildings were right across the street from the National Air and Space Museum. Made it very convenient for lunch breaks, for after hours visiting And depending on if you actually had a window, you might even be able to look out at it. Uh, Windows were not guaranteed while I was at the FAA. Not for interns. No, (laughs) no. I didn't even get a computer until after my first week, so. Well, that's just normal, so. (laughs) (laughs) That was your previous career in space law. How are you involved now? Well, I have started teaching at the law school at Catholic University, and there I teach I have a bit of a commercial slant to to what I talk about. I make sure that everyone's very clear on the three regulatory agencies, as well as the outer space treaties and the touch upon military and ITAR issues, and just a wee bit of government procurement. I also blog. I have a blog called groundbasedspacematters.com, where I talk about space things in the Federal Register, rulemakings, the legal aspects of some science fiction book I just read and whether they got the space law right or whether we're in an alternate universe. There was, there was a great short story called Adverse Possession that allowed me to talk about the elements of adverse possession. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so, so, you know, a, a variety of things. The One of the big things I talk a lot about is the Outer Space Treaties requirement that 
the signatories authorize and supervise the acts of their nationals in outer space. So that is something I blog about. I also, of course, assist my clients with FAA licensing and financial responsibility issues. You know, it's a variety of things. And then I write some science fiction on the side. So my, my next short story is called Fractional Ownership, and I'm hoping to publish in the next week or so. Excellent. And I do have the ability, so just as a plug to anybody listening, I will include links on my website to Laura's blog and to her writing as well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So you are still actively involved in watching what is going on in space law. So what are some of the current topics going on? Well, I think that there's a real initiative underway for regulatory streamlining. And then there's the uh, supervision and authorization issue that I mentioned and planetary protection, whether it applies to commercial people or not. On the regulatory streamlining front, the FAA had this shutdown not happened, was supposed to have a notice of proposed rulemaking published this February 1st. So we'll see if that happens. But, you know, part of doing a rulemaking is it gets reviewed, not just within all of the hierarchy of the FAA, but the Department of Transportation, OMB, the White House, all of those different entities need to see what it says. So I don't know that they've gotten to finish reading it yet or not. So we'll see if that deadline is met. NOAA has done an advance notice of proposed rulemaking asking for comment on whether they should be regulating certain things less, certain things more. They proposed imposing insurance requirements, which struck me as odd because I don't think they have the statutory authority for that. So there's some streamline, streamlining, but some expansion. So maybe they're thinking of seeking a legislative change, but I don't know. So, so the streamlining efforts are underway. And then Article 6, this treaty requirement that everything in outer space, well, let me take that back, that activities in outer space be regulated has led to a lot of debate, a lot of uncertainty on the part of industry. And I testified a couple times in Congress in 2017 about how that provision of the treaty is not self-executing and that until Congress passes a law, the FAA cannot stop you from going to space if you decide you're going to, let's say, mine an asteroid or something. The FAA appears to think it has to. I think the FAA is wrong. And so I, I testified to that effect. And then finally, planetary protection, which I'm sure some of your listeners will know, means that, well, let me back up. Article 9 of the Outer Space Treaty says that states' parties to the treaty are supposed to avoid harmful contamination of outer space. It doesn't define harmful contamination, and you know you it could mean anything from don't bring Agent Orange up or you know nuclear waste, or it could mean don't contaminate science. Well, not strangely, the various science agencies, such as um, the European Space Agency and NASA, have said, hey, we're doing science. We don't want our science contaminated. So they have instituted planetary protection provisions in which they make sure that all spacecraft are sterilized before they go to Mars or any other planet that might uh, be able to harbor life. And 
the treaty itself doesn't say planetary protection. It says contamination, and it applies to states' parties. So I do not think it applies to commercial actors, but there is certainly a number of people who think it might or who want it to. So (laughs) that is a contentious issue that I think is kind of interesting and, and a live issue right now as well. Then sort of further down the horizon, you know, people are getting into discussions about property rights, but I don't think it's quite as pressing, perhaps, as the other three are at the moment. That's sort of, from my perspective anyway, that's what's happening in space law. Don't ask me about the Space Force. I don't know anything about it. I have opinions on it. But you can find someone who will, I'm sure. (laughs) Sure. I I do have one uh, bonus episode already on my Patreon page where I have Chris Hearsey talking about the Space Force. So I'll just tease that to listeners if they want somebody talking about that. But using planetary protection as an example, you sort of phrased it as in, we don't know yet what the treaty does or doesn't allow for private parties. And... I point that out as a means of saying that we can't really know the effect of treaty language until we actually have an activity that tests it, right? So along the lines of early law is bad law, early interpretation could be very bad interpretation of the treaty. I would I would agree with that. And we also have to remember that that those of us interpreting it, we're not a court. We're not judges. So, you know, all our interpretations are are interesting, but you want when someone gives you their their conclusion, you you might want to ask them to show their work. Well, what are the words? Do they really say that? And and go from there. So, I think we need to to keep all of that in mind. And just because a bunch of law professors say one thing, it doesn't mean <laughs> it's true. It doesn't mean it will work out that way. It might. That's something to to think about. Do you think when international law professors point out that uh, publicists can be quoted in the interpretation and formation of international law, they're just trying to preserve job opportunities for themselves in the future? When our uh, international law professor was talking about sources that can be used in the interpretation of international law, there was sort of a hierarchy, right? And like you pointed out, courts that actually adjudicate things and issue rulings. And then below that are concurrent with that state practices. Uh, And then you can have statements of legislatures. And then at the very bottom, they said publicists, meaning people who have published opinions about this sort of thing. They're very low on the totem pole in terms of persuasion or effect on international law, but they have that little category down there. But Um, they are on the totem pole. Yes. yes. even have a Latin word for them, don't they? I don't remember what it is. But, you know, I, I view it as, as a court might look read a law review article, and if the logic is good and supported by, you know, the words in the statute, the court might say, hey, I'm going to do this, but it will do so independently of the fact that, oh, someone wrote an article. I mean, lots of law students write articles, and some of them are better than others. <laughs> and let's talk about another thing. You pointed out the current regulatory streamlining that is going on. And feel free to correct me if I misphrase this, but in your previous job as somebody who was in charge of enforcing regulation, do you think the regulatory streamlining is a good idea? Well, you know, I 
ask me that after I've read it because I don't know what it says. Mm-hmm. So streamlining is like goodness. You're always in favor of goodness. And we're always against badness. <laughs> so streamlining is one of those things that, of course, we're in favor of it. But let's let's see what it looks like. If it's yeah. become so vague that no one knows what's required of them, that would be bad. Conversely, if it's so incredibly detailed that you cannot turn around without getting FAA approval, that's also bad. But it's different ends of the spectrum. So so let's see what it looks like before we we figure whether it's good or bad. You know, I and I just don't know. Right. I think I think. There are two different aspects to streamlining. The first one is reducing the burden of red tape, like you talked about having to, having to get approval just to turn around. I think a lot of people, I recall from the industry, wanting the amount of paperwork that they had to do and all of the checkboxes they had to check to maybe be streamlined a little bit, right? They wanted the burden brought down. But the other aspect, of course, is what is actually being permitted or what is actually being controlled uh, for government approval. A lot of people want fewer things to be actually prohibited by the government or fewer things to be acquired for government approval. But like you said, if it becomes too vague, then it's going to have the opposite effect. It's going to cause confusion and possibly open the door for even more things to be prohibited or controlled for government approval. Right. So on the um, on the FAA front, with which I'm most familiar, you know, the presidential directive ordered the FAA to move more towards performance-based standards. And a perform- the ultimate performance standard is be safe. Well, that's pretty darn vague. And you don't need a regulator to tell you that one. But you do perhaps want a little bit more detail. So the best example I ever heard of a performance standard was one where someone said, well, you know, the FAA's regulations require doors to be, you know, X feet wide. Well, why is that? So that everyone can get out if there's an emergency. So, well, the the better and more flexible version of that regulation would say something like, Make sure the doors are wide enough that everyone can get out in the event of, you know, imminent catastrophe, like the plane's about to blow up or something. And so if there's always a three-minute lag on the plane blowing up after it crashes, then everyone has to get out within three minutes. And for some other plane where there's a nine-minute lag, you could have a smaller door. You know, so so performance-based standards are supposed to enhance flexibility and allow industry to have lots of different designs and do things in different ways. That's really good. However, I think one of the weaknesses of that directive was that it didn't talk about what demonstrations would be adequate. Someone could you know, say, yep, I'm gonna get everyone out in time and that's all they tell you in their application. The FAA might want more information. Well, are they going to want tests? Are they gonna want you to like set an airplane on fire? Or are they going to and then see how fast it takes to get people out? Or are they going to want you to just do a little computer simulation or or test something 3,000 times so that you have your 95% confidence levels? I don't know. And neither often, often when agencies shift, shift to performance-based regulations, they leave that out. And so then it becomes very murky. Like, well... 
the guy over in Oklahoma let me just give him a computer run. Why do you want me to, you know, fly this thing for 90 hours? So that's, that's a lot more expensive. So what that demonstration looks like is going to matter. Yeah, and you know, in my head, the the idea behind publishing a regulation is to make something consistent, the expectation consistent of what you should be, what how to design something sufficiently to satisfy the regulation, but also how to make sure that you can prove that, uh, maybe not quickly, but prove that consistently. And so, if the regulation either performance based or not is too vague, then it's not predictable enough for right. people not to meet. transparent. And you might wind up treating different people differently, even if they should be being treated the same. So that's bad. So it's going to be really interesting to see whether whether that gets addressed or not. But I'm sure, the, I, I mean, clearly the plan is to make them more flexible so that people can have different designs. Yeah, and maybe more performance-based requirements might have helped in that situation you talked about in the beginning about regulations being specifically written for one participant who is no longer around. Yeah. So let's change gears a little bit. Let's talk a, a little more broadly about space law. What is, from your point of view, the biggest misconception in the general public? Well, you know, I, I don't know that it's a misconception so much as they just aren't aware of it. And, and I certainly don't fault the general public. I'm sure there's all sorts of stuff I don't know about, you know, agriculture. But I think sometimes people think that space has no law. You know, they, they think there's NASA and that's it. They don't know that launch operators or satellite operators are subject to FAA and FCC licensing requirements and regulations or that NOAA has a say in, in taking pictures in space. And so um, they think that, that space has no law. And I think that's one. The other one that's more of a, I guess, a pet peeve. Am I allowed a pet peeve? Do you want to hear yes. that? Okay. Yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Is when I'm talking to people who, who really, you know, are outside of the field, they're like, well, it's not like you're going to be able to tell people on the moon what to do. And, and I'm thinking, well, maybe in 200 years, and I guess I did read The Moon is the Harsh Mistress about revolution on the moon against Earth. But right now, everybody's on the ground. And you can totally enforce against people on the ground. Because they, that's where all their property is, that's where they're incorporated, and that's where they are. So, you know, if, you're, if your immediate concerns are how are we going to incentivize people to get off the planet and build habitats and start mining and all sorts of, you know, interesting human activity in outer space, we're, concerns about lunar governance three centuries from now are just not high on my list. And, and I don't think that saying, oh, well, you'll not be able to get them, it's not going to matter for a long time. For a long time, we'll be able to get them, and, and we'll be able to be got, depending on your perspective. Yeah, we're we're centuries away from the expanse at this point. Yeah, a lot of people still have substantial, will have substantial ties to Earth, no matter if they are on simple one-way trips to Mars, because they will likely need resupplies. Yeah, we're we're far away from permanent self-sustaining ecosystems in space.
Do you have any advice to our listeners who are pre-law or pre-graduate school if they are interested in space law and policy? Yes. Well, I, I'm going to be a hypocrite here because I, I, am a, I was a philosophy major, but whenever I got an application for an intern who, who wanted to you know, work with me for the summer on, from law school and they had an engineering degree undergrad, I wanted them. So if if you if you're interested in space and your your mind works that way getting an engineering degree is pretty awesome. Now, it's really hard, so if you're going to law school, maybe you just want to make sure you're conversant with physics, etc., because that will make you better at understanding space law issues. So so you don't have to get an engineering degree, but boy, it makes you attractive. Yes, I remember my first class of space law was all about physics. He said we couldn't get through the rest of the course unless we understood these basic concepts. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, And so for those students who have already made it to law school, would you have any advice for those students who haven't graduated yet or are just about to graduate? Yes, definitely take administrative law. The space industry is a regulated industry, and you're either going to be telling clients how to comply with regulations or fighting with agencies who are trying to exceed their authority or have written very vague rules or or you're going to be representing your clients in a rulemaking proceeding. So administrative law is is a must and probably that's true of many many industries but certainly for space law schools still still do require constitutional law and in the regulatory environment, you do wind up looking at constitutional questions. So I highly commend you to pay attention to that stuff. But it's super confusing and chaotic in law school, or at least that's my memory of it. And I think I read a book about six or seven years ago that kind of cleared things up for me. And so about halfway through your semester on constitutional law, get a hold of Robert Judge Bork's The Tempting of America, and just read the first third of it, and you will feel less insane. It will help you. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> and, um, and you will finally understand what's going on while still getting to think like a lawyer. So so that's, um, that's good. Also, oh. you're the lawyer. Make legal arguments. Okay. And so the final piece of advice for anybody who has already graduated law school, who has been out in the working environment for a few years now and wants to think about making a transition into the field. What advice would you have for them? Well, you know, try and get projects that are related. So insurance is a weird one, but it's it's definitely related. And it helped me because I, I was familiar with the Black Lung Program, which has got insurance requirements. And also, I think it's useful for people, whether you're in law school or trying to transition into the space community, to get involved with all the industry associations, not all of them at once, but go find one where personalities suit you and and throw yourself into that and you'll make connections. People will get to know you. They'll know you show up on time when you say you're going to, that you take care of stuff, volunteer. So there's, you know, Space Transportation Association, the Satellite Industry Association, Women in Aerospace, all sorts of groups are out there that you can participate in and get to know people in the space community. 
And just to wrap it up, I will say that is how I got my first internship at the FAA was by showing up for the Commercial Space Transportation Conference in February, talking, identifying and talking to as many people at the FAA as I could. And by the end of day two, I had an internship lined up for that summer. Excellent. <laughs> it works. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you, Nathan. I had a nice time. for listening to the Astro Esquire podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website at astroesq.com and check out our Patreon page to subscribe for access to bonus content. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave us a review on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The Astro Esquire podcast is hosted and produced by Nathan Johnson. Our theme music was composed by Kevin Bloom. 